Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue-collar work ethic and where I find real value. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. This week, I am joined by Hank Shaw of Hunt, Gather, Cook, fame and notoriety. Hank has been my friend for a little bit over a decade now. I met him when I was living in a trailer in central Arkansas, making a living cooking cheeseburgers, trying to do quote-unquote high-end locally sourced bar food many years ago. Cooked quite a bit together. We've hunted together. And like I said, he's been a friend and a mentor, especially in the space that I find myself in now professionally. In this podcast, this is a very wide-ranging conversation, but uh, we talk about giving credit where credit is due, and that being a central tenet of how Hank lives his life. And in the interest of doing so, uh, you know, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that I don't think that I would be doing what I'm doing now uh, without Hank, not just because of his example, but like I said, because of his mentorship and conversations we've had, like direct advice he's given me and just learning from his example. So I'm super excited to have him on the podcast. I think you can tell from this conversation that we are people that have known each other for a long time and we're friends and we're comfortable. And it, to me, it really sounds like a conversation between buddies and it was a great day. And that morning, so like you might know, or you might not, I guess right now, uh, I'm currently on a Turkey tour in the Western U S Yesterday, I got into Oregon from California. I tagged out in California with my buddy Jimmy Flat, uh, and it was pretty phenomenal. Three turkeys in three days uh, for me personally, and Jimmy had already gotten one before I got there. And then that last day, uh, we doubled. Jimmy actually got his turkey first in the day, and then a couple hours later, uh, he did some really phenomenal calling and decoying and I got a shot on another mature Tom. So now we are in Oregon. We are fixing to go out and hunt a little bit later today. It's been rainy all day. So we're just kind of handling some business first, but, uh, I took a quick moment to record the intro to this podcast, let y'all know. And I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation with my friend, Hank Shaw. Hey folks, welcome back to the podcast. I am currently in Sacramento-ish area at the house of one Hank Shaw. So there's probably probably lots of people that listen to this podcast that already know who Hank Shaw is. Uh, but if you don't, Hank is... Oh, this is going to get uncomfortable because he's sitting here looking at me. But, you know, I would say probably, you know, the preeminent wild game chef of the last 20 years uh prolific author um raconteur uh but hunt gather cook 
and I think we've known each other for 10 or 11 years, something like that. Something like, uh, yeah, it's definitely 11 years, I think. Yeah, I mean, done quite a bit of cooking together, done some hunting together, and I'm up here hunting in Sonoma, and tried this a couple times, but finally, uh, Hank was generous enough to allow me to come over here, fed me again. Uh, what did we have? Ceviche. Uh, Dorado well, ceviche. I, yeah, I know it was ceviche, but I'm just like the whole thing with the tostadas. Yeah, so um, uh, I had been fishing in Florida earlier this week, and I had some Dorado, which uh, most people know as mahi-mahi or dolphin fish. And so I had yet to really do a, an Ensenada-style ceviche. I've eaten it a lot of times, but that's where you grind the meat. You actually run the fish through a, a, a coarse meat grinder, and then you make the ceviche from that, and then you serve it on tostadas and, and you know, you ground it with some guacamole. It's really good. Yeah, it was super, super well-balanced uh, blue corn tortillas that you mm -hmm. made, and you grew the corn yourself here in your really prolific You can actually garden. see the corn patch from where you're sitting. It's real small. I mean, it's we're, we're recording in late April. Yeah, I can see your orange tree, <laughs> lemon and orange tree. And Mapache the cat is very interested in what we're doing. Yeah, Mapache, Spanish for a raccoon. Um you taught me that, or I think down Stuttgart at that last snow goose mm -hmm. deal I did with you. Yeah. What's up, kitty cat? And then a uh, 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 possum in Spanish is tlacuache. Tlacuache. T-L-A-C-A-U-C-H-A-T-E. Tlacuache. Is that an Aztec word or something? It is an Aztec word. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know a little bit, man, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, is... Is Zochi an Aztec word? Zochi is also an Aztec word. That's the other cat. It's the orange cat wandering around. Uh, Zochi is a very common name in this part of California. So uh, we just decided to name her Zochi. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm sure we'll talk about some wild game type stuff. Uh, but like I was just telling Hank, like as Hank has told me, he's got so much exposure he could die from it. So I think that <laughs> you know if you want to do a deep dive on, on Hank and his work, uh, best place to be go would probably be the website, right? Mm -hmm. Thousands of recipes at this point. Yep. The easiest way to find it is to go to huntgathercook.com. Um, I'm on Instagram and, and Instagram is probably the social media I like the best and that I'm on the most. And that's also huntgathercook. Um, I've got five cookbooks. You can find them all on Amazon or wherever fine books are sold. Uh, but Amazon will get you faster. Uh, you can buy it from me, and it'll be signed, but it will be slower because no one can beat Amazon. Yeah. That's what... The Borg. That's, yeah, I'll tell you what, man. That's what happens when you make the uh, Umbrella Corporation. Right. Uh, but... So, I mean, I actually, I mean, I know very specifically how I came across you, and it was, like, the very beginning of... It was that grinder, wasn't it? Kidding. <laughs> it took me, we were just talking about grinding the meat. I was like, what? Uh, no, this this was before Grinder, man. This is when it was just uh, chat lines. But uh, it was, I was Googling. You know there's somebody out there like, oh, damn. <laughs> it's a so, joke, ladies and gentlemen. This is, this is the other thing about, uh, like, me and Hank have known each other for a long time. And, uh, like, the last time we saw each other, we were having a conversation and, realized there was a civilian there was, yeah there was like a civilian listening and i was like hank we need to stop this man <laughs> but uh <laughs> like we're letting trade secrets out but uh it was it was about acorn i was looking up just trying to google stuff about eating acorns like many years ago like 
right at the beginning of me hunting. And uh, it was like, like a lot of stuff, if you Google a lot of wild game stuff, the first thing that'll come up will be one of Hank's recipes. Uh, and so, yeah, I did that. And we, uh, we ended up doing a dinner together in Arkansas when he was doing Duck Duck Goose. Is that your third cookbook? Yeah, second. So 2013. You did that before Buck Book Moves? I did. Okay. And uh, yeah, we've just <clears throat> done stuff together since then. But uh, I mean, honestly, man, like what I like best about you is that you're just a strange conglomeration of stuff, right? So uh, to me, very decidedly, uh, even though your identity is so tied up in like California now, right? And like specifically like these. Oddly, yeah. Yeah. Like these, like these Mexican culinary influences and stuff. And we're, mm -hmm. we'll talk about the book you're working on now, but like to me, like you're very decidedly like East coast, right? Culturally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's where you're from. So you're from Jersey. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then is your mama, is your mama Mainer or am I? Well, sort of. So my grandmother, um, well, my grandmother's actually my real grandmother's Canadian, but my mom was adopted, and so her adopt her adopted mother's a Mainer, and so but she grew up in Ipswich, Massachusetts, which is you know you can throw a rock to Gloucester, and I bring the Maine up because the the oldest recipe that I still do is a Maine style clam chowder that is from my great great grandmother from up in Maine. So it's a, it's a, it's a mid 1800s recipe that I still do. It's the oldest thing that I still do. That's as a family relevance. And like you have a, a deep relationship with like ocean fishing, right? Oh yeah. Developed up there. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, so everybody talks about, Oh, Oh man, I tell you what, I just love taking my little son out fishing for brim. Cause I caught my first brim when I was three years old. Like I didn't catch my first brim sunfish to, if you're not from the South, until I was like 27 because we use bait bigger than brim. <laughs> I got my first tuna when I was 10. Um, you know, fl bluefish, flounder, striped bass, all that stuff. Like I, I grew up in the Jersey shore and fishing saltwater and my mom's from Gloucester basically. So it's like saltwater's in my blood and I feel much more comfortable hundred miles offshore than I do on a stream casting a fly. Do you fly fish at all? I, I don't i know how to i'm not very good um i have yet to see more than a couple instances where i need to fly fish because it's a better method of catching fish mm -hmm. than conventional fishing there are there absolutely are instances where fly fishing will be will catch you more fish than than conventional gear but not for what i do like, yeah like i just i was literally five days ago Five days ago, before we sat here and recorded this, I was hauling up a swordfish from 1,580 feet. Good Lord, man. How long does that take? Uh, a fair bit. <laughs> a fair bit, and your arm falls off. Like, it's real, 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 real. So, God damn it. Just went back all the way about at the bottom. Real, 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 real. And he does it 16 times. And like, it, it can take nine hours, but this one, this is a small, I only caught a small one. So it only took about 40 minutes, but. What's a critter like that way? This was a tiny one. We actually threw him back. It was, he was only about 45 pounds, but 45 pounds from, from 1500 feet is still a thing. The ones we wanted were anywhere from a hundred to 500. Lord, man. Alas, we didn't catch one. 
We tried. Man. That's we caught the Dorado wild. you ate today, though. Yeah, very, very tasty. Uh, I'm starting to... I'm, I'm starting to... Uh, be more desirous of ocean fish. So like all the fish I eat are, are freshwater fish mm-hmm. that I catch, you know? Um, but see, I've got this thing with motion sickness. Like the last mm-hmm. time I tried to go uh, ocean fishing, we would halibut up in Alaska. or someplace. Yeah. My God, man. Like I paid hundreds of dollars to vomit for eight hours until there wasn't anything left. Please tell me you took Dramamine or Bonin. Yeah, didn't work. Really? Dude, mm-hmm. the only thing I found that actually has started to work is like i couldn't fly on a plane i didn't fly on a plane for 11 years man because i got so sick on a plane dude wow i like dude it's it's like almost a disability level man like it's Hmm. but those uh those scopolamine patches behind your ear yep do you have you tried that copper wrist thing no uh i have a, a good friend of mine who shall remain nameless because it would be besmirch his reputation but he is a ship captain He's a charter boat captain. Mm-hmm. He gets royally seasick. But he has one of those little copper band things. I don't know the brand, but it's a one of those copper band seasick things. Swears by it. Really? Whether it's psychosomatic or not, it works for him. And Because he's on the water like 100 days a year. Yeah, I mean, if he's doing it professionally, yeah. he's got to have some. And, you know, psychosomatic works. You know? Yeah, it like, does. Who cares if it's... As long as it works. If you breathe through your eyelids, as you know, what is, what is that from Bull Durham? You breathe, if you wear women's underwear and breathe through your eyelids like an Aztec, like it's it's, it's you know it's oh it's a Fernando Valenzuela reference. And somebody out there is going to be knows it by heart, and it's it's the Bull Durham reference. But it's basically if you if the, if that's what it takes for you to do whatever it is, and it's in your head, just keep doing it. Like don't yeah, break yeah. it. Yeah, that bull man. There's going to be people listening to this. They don't know what Bull Durham is. No, there aren't. I promise you, man. We, we were just talking about it, man. Then, then they're just, they're not Americans. Like, <laughs> you cannot pass citizenship without watching Bull Durham, Animal House, mm, Blues Brothers, Jaws, and probably Star Wars. Man, I hate to break this to you, man, but... That I don't think most of those movies are a thing anymore. I don't think people watch them. No, but they're they're canonical. Like it's they're so they're the basis upon which everything else comes afterwards. So because there's, there's a great there's virtually all of film subsequent to to that period refers back to that period. So you'll you you if someone like me who has seen the original movies, be like, oh, that's a reference to that. And it's a very conscious reference in the film industry. But somebody who's young will never get it. Yeah, but I mean, I'd I'd tell you that like most people aren't reading aren't reading the canon anymore. You know, yeah, like, fair. That's fair. It's. I feel like old man yells at cloud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's there's some <laughs> of that, there's some of that going on, man, for sure. <laughs> but um. So yeah, so we were talking about like where you're from. So. And I don't know. Some, I'm surely you've talked about this at some point, but like. Uh, so you know originally you went you're like participating in journalism right well um i mean after i got through high school and college um did you go to j school no no i I was a history and political science major um i worked in restaurants in college so so my professional cooking experience is during is during both undergraduate and graduate school so journalism 
kind of comes in during graduate school okay. and then takes over for it because it's essentially the same profession if you think about it. So if you're a cook and you're a journalist, they're both misfit professions. Sure. They're both professions with weird hours. They're both professions with a predilection for substance abuse. Yeah. They're both, and this is the most important part, they're both professions in that you do because you want to do it. You don't you don't become a journalist for money. You don't become a cook for money. You do those jobs because you want to do them. And so it was a kind of a seamless transition. And with you know, if you're when you're a cook, it's performance art. Like I knew you were coming. Well, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, so I backstory. The ceviche that I served you tonight was going to be on Hunter Angler Gardener Cook at some point. So that was just sort of the day that you came and it just, it was going to happen anyway. Mm -hmm. However, I took extra level of care with my knife work, with portioning, with everything, with everything, because I knew there was going to be somebody else eating it today. Sure. And so that desire to really, uh, it, to to please someone is that's just a, it's a terrible way to put it. But it's like we really want to make make you remember our food. When good cooks always want that because you eat it and you're like, holy crap, this is amazing. I've never like I've even if you've had the thing before, whether, whether it's fried fish or ceviche or or beef bourguignon or whatever. When, when I cook it and when a good cook cooks it, we're like, here, try this. And we know it's good. I mean, we, we know it's good. We don't, we don't know. We're still a little self. We know on one hand that, that, it, that it's good because we know our technique. But on the other hand, we're eternally self-conscious. Like, did I fuck anything up? Yeah. I mean, you're looking for validation on a level. It's, it's, a, it's a push-pull. Yeah. And... Not so much validation is great, but once you get good at it, like you know, but like you you you're looking for validations from higher and higher planes. Mm -hmm. So you're starting to look at for. I mean, you were a chef, so I mean that's how we met. Is that you were you were? Yeah, you know what I like, man. Too is that it like feels like a sign of respect. Like you gave me that tortilla, right? You gave me a super simple tortilla with butter on it, mm -hmm. right? Like. That was the introduction to it. Just like while you were making it, you're like here. Or, man, this is. I still remember this. We were. And that's the that 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 tortilla was corn from the backyard. Yes. See, and that's and that's what you're communicating. That's the engagement level, right? Mm -hmm. Or when we were uh, that that crazy that crazy Mike guy that. Oh, we were crazy Mike about, from right? Arkansas. Yeah. Yeah, we were. Uh, I forget what we were. I don't remember if we were making gumbo or something, but whatever it is, we had roasted a chicken. And, like the chicken came out, and I remember you were like come on, you're like, let's eat the skin real quick. It's because it, it won't get me crispier than this, right? Mm -hmm. Like th those are uh, those are like kind of simple ways to engage with someone that uh, it's also like a way of communicating with someone. Like it, it's acknowledging like you're my people, right? Like you understand this level of it. So I don't have to put a bunch of frills on this. We're getting to the, the meat of it. Like if I give you the oyster, uh, off the back leg of a wild turkey um, and you're not a woman because it's like that like it's it's soap it's such a precious piece it's, there's only two if you're not familiar out there for what the oyster is so the the on any bird 
there's a ball and socket joint on the hind legs. Well, the legs, because the other hind, the other legs are wings. And there's a ball and socket joint, and then right in front of it is a is an oval an oval piece of meat called the oyster. So every bird has it, but but the bigger the bird, the bigger the piece of meat. And so on a turkey is it's it's you'll see this in Thanksgiving. It's a it's about yeah, the about, size of a quarter. Yeah, I popped them off yesterday. Yeah, and it's the single greatest piece of meat on the on the bird. Like bar none, there's no debate. Like there just isn't. Like it just is. And if you don't believe that, you've just never eaten it. And and so it's if you if you were to give this, it's it's like an, an Alaska. If I were to give you the halibut cheeks, mm-hmm. like these simple little bits, like are it's almost like a it's a, an unwritten code. Like it's a, it's a it's a language that. I'm not going to give it to someone who doesn't know that this is the precious thing that it is. Yeah. Yeah. Which is also like, and I've said this plenty of time before, before that's like, uh, that's, you know, so like if you hunt and you're dealing with people that don't, you hunt and you fish and you're dealing with people that don't, you know, there's kind of that thing like, man, I'd sure like to try some of this. I'd, I'd like to eat some elk. I'd like to eat blah, blah, blah. I'm never going to give somebody I don't care about any of the stuff that I've hunted, you know, like it's, it's like, if I give you like that black bear, I killed like that black bear was hard for me to get mm-hmm. the people that I've given bits of that black bear to like, they're people that I care about. Yep. You know, uh, if I think you're an asshole, like I'm not giving you any of that. I, I might feed you, but it's not going to be with any of that. <laughs> There's a term. Um, so, the, uh, so, in in uh, in hunting, well, really in any in any big game animals, there's there's the eye round. Mm-hmm. So the eye round is a is a cylindrical piece of meat that is buried within the the back leg of a four legged animal. And on a on a, on a you can buy it in the supermarket, uh, in from beef or bison. So it's it's fairly substantial in, in beef and bison, but but it's it's a little bit smaller on a deer. But if you if you pull it out the way I butcher a hind leg, it looks exactly like a tenderloin. So mm-hmm. I call it the neighbor's tenderloin. So it's not a tenderloin. It's not nearly as t- tender. <laughs> but if you cook it the same way as a tenderloin, it, it's okay. It'll get you kind of close. So if, if I've got somebody who I don't think really cooks that well or doesn't really appreciate food that well and they're like badgering me for like some deer meat, like, here, have that. Yeah, that's what you give them? It's the neighbor's tenderloin. Just like the the other joke is that uh, a spoonie is, is called neighbor's mallards. Yeah, yeah, sure. I can see that. Uh, although I've never had a bad spoonie. Well, uh, have you? Did you pluck every single spoonie you eat? No, I skin them. See, there you go. Yeah. Well, if any skin bird's gonna be fine. But I also think too, like what I mean, obviously it's what they're eating, right? And like, yeah. Uh, they're algae eaters. They're they're not obligate algae eaters, but they're primarily algae eaters. And so the trick to good spoonies, and yeah, you live in Arkansas. Yeah, that's, so, what, that's what I'm talking about. So I birds. live in California and you live in Arkansas. And both of us have, have been able to shoot spoons that eat rice. Yeah. Because they'll eat rice when they have rice. And so spoonies, when they eat rice, their their fat turns white, kind of ivory white. It's mm-hmm. never going to be like like pure white like a pintails, but it'll be close. So the trick is to, to, to roll, if you shoot one, in a, in a rice growing region, so Southeast Texas, Arkansas, or California, is to pluck the breast and look at the fat. Is it is it a well upholstered bird? Because quite often they're super fat. And if that fat is like white to ivory, keep plucking. If it's orangey or yellow, skin them. And because we got, Holly and I got 
five, I think, this year that we plucked, and they were indistinguishable from a widgeon. Really? Mm-hmm. It's 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 only when they get into the rice. Man, you guys, your birds are so much fatter in here. Like, I really don't. Like, I can get some fat speckle bellies, mm-hmm. fat ish, ish. You know, like dad bod, uh, dad but, bod, but big butts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, basically me. <laughs> uh, but like, I don't ever shoot like real fat mallards or anything there in Arkansas. I guess just because of where it's at in the flyway. They've, but even, I mean, there's plenty. I don't understand quite why, because there's plenty of birds that have been hanging around. Like, mm. they've had time to put on weight. Um, but yeah, like the pictures you post and like the amount of fat you render off of birds is, I mean, I couldn't do it if I tried. Yeah. I mean, we, I have just feet from here in my box freezer, probably a gallon of rendered duck fat That's wild. in mason jars in the freezer. Yeah, man. I mean, I'm, I'm having to kill a bear to get that yeah. kind of grease. And it, it's funny. Yeah. Like, like Clay talks about bear grease. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I kind of duck grease is my thing. And, and I mean, we'll, I mean, never is a long time, but we'll never run out. I mean, because it, it, it lasts in the freezer till the second coming. I mean, I've got yeah. just, I've got one in the fridge right now from 2020, and it's perfectly fine because it was in the freezer for two years. And you can, like, cook something in and, and strain it and mm-hmm. use it for something else, right? Absolutely. Uh, it makes a really good, if you just melt it to the point where it's melted, which, by the way, is only, like, 85 degrees because it's so unsaturated. Okay. Um, it makes a fantastic salad dressing. Really? Mm-hmm. Just like do like a vinaigrette with it? Yep. Yep. And it's it has to be a semi warm. So it can't be um you know so so wild duck fat in general is room is liquid, like full liquid at about eighty five degrees. Mm-hmm. Like if if I put it on that porch in summertime, it's gonna be crystal clear and pure liquid. Even in the house, which we keep it like seventy eight in the in the in the summertime. It's it's hot here in Sacramento. But we'll keep the house at 78 in the summer. It'll be liquid, but it'll be still cloudy. You put it outside, cleans up. Uh, you keep your house at 78? Yeah. So this is a thing that you, that Southerners don't get because we don't have humidity. Because um, 78, when it's 110 out and no humidity, is perfectly cool. Like you have no problem. Okay. Yeah, but yeah. 78, when it's mega humid, still sucks miserable yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah i live in i live in like the humidity capital of the world i don't know man i've been to florida i don't know that it, i mean we're dealing with 100 percent humidity how does it get worse okay yeah there you go i was described it uh i was eating dinner with jimmy flat and his parents yesterday and uh i described it i was like they were asking like what the weather's like in arkansas i said in the summertime i was like take a you know, take a blanket, get it soaking wet, and then stick it in the dryer for like eight minutes. Just long enough to get hot but not to dry, and then wrap yourself up in it. And then go do whatever you have to do. That's basically what it's like from the yeah. end of May until uh, Halloween. So my, my buddy in, uh, from Mobile calls it the the, uh, the hot blanket of hate. Yeah, that's a great description. Because it's just, it's just, it makes everybody annoyed. It's just, everyone's on a short fuse. Yeah, that old murder rate goes way up, man. Yeah, I bet. It was a three shirt days, you know. Oh God. Just change that act doing that actually really improved my uh improved my life. Uh the three shirt day. Just like, man, it's I've been outside, man. I've done it's lunchtime time to put a new fresh clean shirt on. You don't get a whole bunch of 
just like Hanes white undershirts. <laughs> just keep swapping them out, man. Uh, and yeah, I always say like the two things to, for me to live in, for me to live in the South, the two things that had to happen were uh, air conditioning and the civil rights movement. <laughs> With, without those two things, I'm not living there. Well, I think the civil rights movement is probably more important, but air, air conditioning is definitely right behind it. <laughs> I don't think I don't think people could live in places like Interior Florida without it. Because I mean, they did. I mean, at some point. I mean, the Seminoles did, but the Seminoles had like the secret knowledge that, like, of I mean, just think about the bugs. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the Seminoles, they got pushed there. They're not originally from there. Oh, who's originally from there? Which group is from? I don't, I don't actually don't know, but I know the Seminoles came from, uh, Seminoles came from east. Well, it can't come from further east of Florida. That would be the Atlantic. West, west. Sorry, I've got my direction wrong. They okay. came from the west. Yeah. <laughs> they were just out <laughs> swimming around. They're from Bermuda. For hundreds, <laughs> hundreds of years. Yeah. No. Uh, oh, but, I didn't know that. Or have you ever heard of like maroon colonies? Yeah, yeah, Like yeah. the escaped slaves and stuff yep. and they got up in there, man. I mean, everything's like a matter of perspective. Like some old Floridian swamp, I guess, is with you know full of cottonmouths and bugs is better than a life of bondage, right? Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> for sure. But God, yeah, I mean, you also talk about the Cajuns. Cajuns, you know, that yeah. was, they got sent there. You know, south of I ten before there was I ten. Uh, tough man. Those yeah, you think about it, like, so that's the one thing that I always think about when you watch, like, one of the guilty pleasures I have is, is Naked and Afraid. Oh, I, really? I, was, I wouldn't have thought that. I was asked to be on that show about six years ago, and for the good of humanity, I said no. Yeah, thank you, man. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And, I, and everybody in the world will thank me. Um, and, but I like the show. I like the idea of the show. And one of the things that always comes up when they're in a humid place are, are just eight trillion bugs. And one of the things that I also, I also am very, very interested in paleontology and, and, and human origins and, and anthropology and that kind of stuff. So one of the things that they have recently discovered about red ochre, I'm not, I'm not are you familiar with it? Yeah, sure. Okay. So red ochres, if you, if you're out there and you're not familiar with it. So red ochre is a thing that, it, that occurs with <laughs> Mapache the cat is very interested in your wires. Um, so one of the things that occurs in, in, in ancient communities all over the world, really, is this use of red ochre. And it's like a clay that you that, that just people would anoint themselves and they would put on bones. And it just was very important in all these places. So for when I was in school, you know, in the 90s and late 80s, they're like, oh, it's ceremonial. It's religious. It's absolutely all these things. And, it's like, and then somebody was like, hmm, well, let's put some on and see what happens. Well, number one, it's really good sunscreen, and two, mm. it's it it keeps bugs off you. So, <laughs> which is one of those really hilarious things about like when when you see different generations of people getting into like anthropology or paleontology or archaeology, you're like if the, the old school stuff that I was always taught was like everything is religious or ceremonial, blah blah blah. Yeah, like, that's always kind of like the answer when they don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, it's just like, it's, it's their SPF 30 and, and it's, it's good stuff. If, um, I, 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 there has to be lots of things like that in the indigenous communities in North America to like, cause I mean, think about it. If you were 
hanging out, you know, in pre-contact. So let's just say 1,200. Mm-hmm. Hanging out in Florida, because we know there were lots of groups there. And they were living the high life because, you know, if you live along the Gulf, um, you know, food is just a low tide away. And sure. it's, it's you know, there's all kinds of resources in the Gulf. But, but it's super buggy and it's super humid, just as it is now. And so what do you do? So they had to have some cocktail of like, oh, you mix these three plant juices or you do this kind of mud or, or whatever. And that's, that link, that, that knowledge is lost and to, to humanity's detriment. And, but because people are people, right? So like, I don't care if you're born and raised there. I don't care if you're, if your people are from the Gulf coast from 10,000 years ago, Mosquitoes suck. <laughs> yeah, universally. <laughs> so there's, so there had to be some kind of like local deal where you can, uh, or you can get rid of them that we have lost. And, and so it's, it's one of those things that I'm always interested in, like because there was life before sunblock, and there's life before air conditioning, and and so how do you how do you deal with that? Well, you know, like uh, there's also probably too like a level of just resiliency that we've lost because of creature comforts, you know, cause like in the South, there was a thing to where like you went and you slept on the screened in porch, mm-hmm. you know, and you know, they built houses in a way that would allow breezes to come. Through. They did. Uh, and, and you know, even to the point, so I spent a, I've spent a ton of time like working outside, just like making a living. And what I always found is, like on a macro and a micro level, if I'm doing it regularly throughout the summer, I mean, it's not like I don't know it's hot, but it's not just kicking the shit out oh, of yeah. me. Oh, yeah. May is the worst month. Yeah. May is my sweat month. Because you're getting used to it yep, again, right? Exactly. Uh, same thing is that it's, it's, I've also seen, a, seen what happens is like, oh, today I've got to be outside doing stuff all day, right? And it's hot. I've got to get out there and start at 6.30 in the morning because then my body acclimates to it all day long as opposed to like I go outside at 10 o'clock in July and it's going to be misery all the way through. 100%. So uh, I spent a lot of time on Dolphin Island in Alabama. and That's the Redneck Riviera, man. Uh, that's really 30A. <laughs> it's like Gulf, you know, Orange Beach, Gulf Shores. That's... It's an outpost of the Redneck Root area. Um, it's it's where the salt life stickers come from. Maybe, um, but anyway, my buddy Joe, his dad lives on on Dauphin Island, and Joe's from uh, Foul River. Where's that at? Um, between Mobile and, and uh, Dauphin Island. Okay. So, when we're there, you're either outside or you're inside. The worst thing you can do is go in and out. Yeah. It's yeah, exactly, you're right. It's exactly yeah. what you're saying. It's like if you're out, you're out, and you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm stinky, I'm sweaty. Until it, until you're done and you go inside, it, take a shower, and stay inside. Exactly, yeah. exactly. That's that's how you deal with that whole thing. It's like you, you if you, it's this is why Miami sucks. It's like and sorry to anybody who lives in Miami, but Miami's culture is very. You, you dress well. It's the air conditioning set at like I mean. I feel like it's set at 60, but it's not. And it's just, it's like there's ice cold air conditioning and then it's just mega hot and humid. And it's like, 
back, 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 back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it's just, it's just a whipsaw that just, ah, I can't take it. It's hard. And like, you got to be either out or you got to be in. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, I, I guess I hadn't really thought about that, but. Uh, I'm not sure this is the topic of your podcast, but like. Oh, no, this, it's all, <laughs> whatever we're talking about is the topic of the podcast. I will say, man, dude, I, uh, end of the day on a brutal hot day, there ain't nothing better than just freezing out that AC and getting under the covers, man. I love it. Uh, but, okay, but so we were talking about, we'll segue back. We were talking about like this, this being an amalgamation of things, right? So we got to probably 25-year-old Hank. Uh, <laughs> so then, so you've worked in, you worked your way into journalism, right? Mm-hmm. Which you're incorporating uh, political study into that, right? So like you're working for, you're working for this like African-American newspaper. The first news, the first story I ever got paid to write uh, was for a newspaper called the Liberian Drummer. And I was a senior in, in undergraduate school and the owner of it uh, obviously was Liberian and he wanted stories about what was going on in Africa at the time. So I would, you know, this is before the internet, by the way, this, what, well, there, there was a time before there, indeed actually. Well, so it was before the World Wide web, the internet existed, but this, so this was about 1992. So it was, you're dealing with like gopher and FTP protocols. And like there was no, there's no net, like, you know, it, um, so I would compile information that I could gather because it's what I studied at um, and, and get dispatches and, and create and I would call embassies and things like that and do dispatches about what was going on in Africa for this newspaper. And that was the first thing I ever got. That was the first ever story I got paid for. I think I have a copy of it somewhere here. And weren't you, you lived in Southern Africa, right? For like a while? Not a ton. I, I guess it was four months. Yeah, it was it. I went over there in 1995 um, because Mandela. Had, I went to South Africa first in Zimbabwe and Botswana, but I went to South Africa specifically because Mandela had been elected, and and so I went there the following year to cover. So so Mandela had been elected, but all the other political figures of apartheid were still in place until 1995 when those elections were being held. So this is basically, they changed the leadership at the head and then the body had to follow. And so this is the election that I ended up covering. And God, there's some crazy stories. Uh, I got I got stuck in, in a place called Clip Town, which is a, a, a black township outside of um, a Bloemfontein. And I got stuck there at night at a time where like, Guy who looks like me is going to get killed, probably tired. Um, and so the family that I was hanging out with were like, Wait, yeah, no. step back real quick, tired. Oh, that's when they stick a tire over your shoulders and arms and then light it on fire. It's, it's, it's not a good way to go. Yeah, effective, I'm sure, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not a good way to go. Um, and so the family I was hanging out with was like, no, you have to come in. You have to, so you have to, you, you can't, or you have to stay, spend the night and, and don't let anybody see you. And so it was a little scary and turns out it, um, you know, it's at night. Everything's like, okay, as long as we're here, we'll be okay. I don't think anybody knows you're here and you'll be all right. And, um, and so I cooked for them. I cooked borvors for them. They had basically ransacked their kitchen and and cooked them dinner and just like put some stuff together. And there were some sausages and I made a salad and 
And I think I, I made, um, I made polenta because mm-hmm. corn, corn mush is a big thing there, but I made it in Italian style and they liked it. And I'll never forget. This is a funny story. So, so let me, there's a backstory to it. So when I was in high school, uh, I, I told you before I, I cleaned carpets for, for, to help pay for the rent. Yeah. And so I cleaned <clears throat> carpets in New Jersey and so it's a crew chief and a, and a, it's two guys who goes out. And so there's a crew chief and then there's the, the other guy. And I was the other guy. So my crew chief was a guy named Gaylord Reed. And Gaylord Reed was an ex-con. Um, he helped rob a bank in like the early 70s and had got out. Um, but he, uh, he was the nicest guy you ever want to meet. And the guy could sell... The old expression is you sell ice cubes to Eskimos, which is probably, you don't use that term anymore. But anyway, the guy could sell anything to anybody. And so me and Gaylord were, were the team supreme. And so I remember we were down in South Jersey one day. And I was 16 years old. And so South Jersey is just, it's farm country. There's, there's not a lot of diversity. And so this little girl who's like six or eight years old goes up to Gaylord and like rubs her finger on his forearm. I'm trying to see if he's going to come off. Yeah. So Gaylord's, Gaylord had real dark skin. And as, and it, and, and she was like, oh, and the mom was mortified. And she, cause this little girl had never met a black person before. Yeah. Flash forward to, I'm, you know, the next morning, like dawns up. And, and so these, these, um, they're all made, all these houses in this township were made of, uh, uh, rebar and, and cinder blocks. And so they, they had a little cinder block, sort of yard ish thing that was walled off. So I could go outside in the morning. The first thing I remember was this cold as hell. Like this is the thing, like South Africa is it's it's temperate. It's not unlike you know, it's really not unlike New Jersey in the sense that it gets cold as hell in the wintertime. So I remember I had a a a, a hand mirror, like a, a a cracked hand mirror and a little bucket of water that had a crack ice to, to get to the water for it to shave. So I'm holding the mirror with one hand and I'm shaving with this cold water and the other. And, and the, uh, the family's little kid who had been to, who he, he was asleep when I got into the, to the house to kind of hold up for the night, the little kid and I'm shaving the little kid does the same thing to my forearm to see if it would come off. And I'm like, well, I'll be damned. <laughs> That's the first time you'd ever been that close to a white person. Yeah. Uh, you remember that Kevin Costner movie, uh, that Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, you know, it's got... Morgan Freeman in Morgan it. Morgan Freeman is yeah. a Moor, yep. right? And they refer to him uh, as the Painted Man. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that witch going, the Painted Man. <laughs> uh but so, <laughs> anyway, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So I covered that. I covered that election in South Africa, uh, and I and I and I covered a few other things in Zimbabwe. And um, I think that the the takeaway from it that I took was the only way that you're going to make a living as a foreign correspondent in Africa is to get shot at quite a bit. And I wasn't into that. So uh, at the same time, I realized that that the United States had enough problems at home that I was kind of more needed at home than I was in, in, in some far off, far off land. So I switched to do American politics instead of, um, overseas stuff. And then you, and you were doing that when you moved to California, right? Yes. Yeah. I moved to California to cover governor Schwarzenegger. 
How long ago was that now? 2004. Wow. Uh, and then you start hunting in your 30s. Mm-hmm. I right? started hunting in Minnesota. You started bird hunting? Uh, birds, squirrels, and rabbits. Okay. Although I had a deer hunt real early on where it was kind of hilarious. but <laughs> Was it like a deer drive style? or No, it was with a buddy of mine, another reporter, who was who sounded like he was like Tony Soprano, but he was from Tacoma, Washington, weirdly. And a guy named Tim Huber. So Tim took me on my first ever deer hunt in Miles City, Montana, the east side of Montana. And <laughs> so the we tooled around. And first of all, I didn't know that you could quarter a deer because this is my first ever deer hunt. And so Tim shoots his, the world's largest mule deer doe. Um, this mule deer doe had to be 200 pounds. And he shoots his mule deer doe five miles from the truck. He's like, all right, we're going to drag it in. And I'm like, okay. Because I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know. What, what the hell do I know? So we, ra- we wrapped ropes around our arms and, and went it through and, and ran it through the Achilles of this deer and dragged it for five miles. Had he killed a deer before? He had. And I don't know why. I don't know why to this day. Because uh, unfortunately he had a stroke and I haven't been able to really talk to him since. But, um, to this day, I'm like, why do we order this thing? <laughs> and so we dragged this. There's no hide left on. I mean, there's there's no fur on, on yeah, the hide. Yeah. It's just, we dragged it through a prairie dog town. And, and to this day, I hate prairie dogs because of it. Because uh, they shouted at us for like an hour. And, Plus the plague. And, and the plague. Yeah. But we got the deer back. And so my version, my, my when it came to be my turn to hunt, it was, it basically came down to, my first deer hunt is like this. Hey, shoot that deer. What deer? That deer. What deer? That deer right there. <laughs> so we're in the truck rolling in on this abandoned farmstead with an apple orchard. And he knew that there was, that there's some still apples hanging around. And this, it's an old abandoned place near Jordan, Montana. And, and so we get out of the truck. So it's like, we're rolling in. Cause we're going to, we we're like, I bet there's going to be deer here. Sure enough. There's one like right there. And so I finally see this thing. That's like 20 yards in front of the truck. And so I open up the passenger door rack a shell, sink down to my knees, wrap the strap, tighten up, and pull the trigger. And the deer goes, blah, and then runs around the barn because there's this old abandoned barn with like half the roof falling down and everything. This deer runs around the, uh, this deer runs around the thing. And Tim's like, go around the other way. And so I'm racking another shell. I distinctly remember I racked a shell and it fell out. I racked another one, so I have one shell left. I walk, I'm running around this barn, and then Tim's running around the other side, and then apparently at the same time we see a button buck who's like standing there looking at us on the other hand, and Tim shouts, "Don't shoot that one!" <laughs> and I'm like, "Okay," and that button buck runs off, and I and I meet Tim, and there's the dead deer. That's the whole hunt. That's the entire hunt in real time. Like that's my first deer. <laughs> yeah. It's a little bit like the first time, like when you lose your virginity. Like if there's anybody out there who's had this mystical, magical experience the first time you lost your virginity, I would like to know you because that's just not the norm. Like a lot of first deer hunts are like, like what I just described. Uh, well, you know, I guess if there's a similarity, you know, there's a there's a skill set that you have to acquire, right? Uh, and there's a lot of luck involved. In yeah, both of them, right? You're just happy to be there. Uh, but so 
you start doing that, you combine. I mean, I'd argue you, you've combined, uh, like, found this intersection of like wild food and cooking and and a type of journalism, right? Like, you're not. It's not just like pure recipes. Uh, there's there's a story with everything, and there, there's explanations, and especially like if someone follows you. You know, I think they get a sense for like how you're living your life, like fairly immersive, right? Like, I think that's a good way to describe you. Like, you're not you're not half assing any of this stuff that you're doing. No, it's important not to because it's disrespectful, especially if you're cooking somebody else's cuisine. Um, you know, I'm focusing a lot on Mexican food right now for a lot of reasons, and. The, I mean, to the point where I, I'm, I'm learning Spanish. I, I started learning Spanish three years ago. I grew up speaking English and Italian. Italian because it's the place of New Jersey I lived in. And um, But, you know, I mean, you can't really know Mexican cuisine without being able to speak and read Spanish. And and if you and if you think otherwise, you're just fooling yourself. It's just it's just simply not true. And and there's a million layers to the onion of whatever it is that you're looking to learn that if you're not willing to go the whole way, you're really just not really interested in it. And, and it's probably better for you to let other somebody else go there because even if you're from that culture or that cuisine or, or whatever, whatever, if you're not a student of it, then somebody who is is going to be better than you at that. And I've seen this where the thing is like there are so many different ways to do something. And there's so many there's 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 multiple right ways to do things. And you see this with Cajun food. Let's just take it let's just stay within the United States for a second. So I do a lot of Cajun food and all of my Cajun recipes, every single one of them, has is either taught from or done in consultation with Cajuns. Like most of them I pick up and learn and do and, and figure out south of Interstate 10. That said, every single time I publish a Cajun recipe, somebody from south of I-10, but from a different town, tells me I'm some stupid Yankee who doesn't know anything about anything. And which, you know, I'm a big boy, I can handle it. But I'm like, dude, just because I don't do it the way your mom made it doesn't mean it's not Cajun. Um, but you have to know that. Like, you have to know that if you put a bunch of tomato in your gumbo, it's Creole. It's not Cajun. Yeah. It's. I mean, there's a there's an amazing Creole gumbo that has quite a lot of tomato in it. Um, but that's Creole gumbo. But if you're doing a Cajun gumbo, and here's the thing, and everyone's going to jump on me for this one. If I had a dollar for every time I have seen an a, you know a Cajun a Cajun cook south of Interstate 10 put a spoonful of either Rotel or a spoonful of tomato paste into gumbo, I could eat at the French Laundry. Really? Yeah. It's 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 the exact same thing about sugar and cornbread in the South. Okay. So cornbread in the South should not be sweet. Period. End of story. Get it right on it. However, a little spoonful of sugar in cornbread makes corn taste more of itself without making the resulting cornbread be sweet. It's the same thing. So 
yes, a Cajun gumbo should not be tomatoey at all. That said, a spoonful of tomato paste you will find in many people's recipes, and then they often don't even talk about it. Because it's like this weird cultural thing. We're like, oh God, no, we can't have that. But they do it because it makes it taste better. And the same thing with like a spoonful of sugar in cornbread. Not not Yankee cornbread, which is like sweet corn muffins. And that's a different thing. I like it too, but it's not not Southern cornbread. But it, just enough. It, basically, these are these are hacks that people have come up with over the you know, centuries maybe to elevate the flavor of a thing within while keeping the ultimate flavor profile within what you expect. So if it's too, like back to the gumbo, if it's too tomatoey, people are going to be like, ah, you know, that's, that's Creole. But you can make a dark Cajun roux gumbo with a single spoonful of tomato paste that's virtually impossible to tell that it's there. Like really, I can't even tell and I put it in. But it makes it just a richer gumbo. And there's a ton of that kind of stuff. Like, but, but, but to circle back to Mexico, the coolest thing about Mexican cooking is that there you don't get you don't have these fierce guardians of cuisine like you do in Hungary or Italy or Cajun country, where they think you're a bad person for altering a traditional recipe in any way. That's not that's not the Mexican tradition at all. Like as long as you know what the, what it's supposed to be, you do you. And the freedom in in Mexican cuisine within Mexico to play is incredibly liberating and incredibly exciting because the reason why that cuisine excites me so much is because it scratches every single itch. You have the freedom to play. You have an enormous reliance on wild ingredients from from wild herbs to fish and game to you know to, to to really everything you've got fermentation you've got you've got ancient grains you've got thousands of years of amazing amazing you know cuisine history right so so all of the great cuisines like and i use this term in a specific way all of the great cuisines require a a great civilization because in the way I'm using the word cuisine, if you don't have a great civilization, you don't have a class of people cooking for other people as for as a profession. So you can get great food everywhere. Like there's great food all over the world. But in terms of like a soup to nuts, 365, three meals a day cuisine, you've got you have to have a great a great civilization where you have a class of people who cook for other people. And Mexico has two, really more than that, but there's really two that everybody knows, and that's the Maya and the Aztecs. And so Peru has it, France, Italy, China, uh, Ethiopia, um, India, and a couple other places. But there's very few places around the world where you've got thousands of years of, of, of accumulated knowledge about how to cook the things that grow around you. Like there's a reason I worked for an Ethiopian restaurant. It was, it was my first actual real restaurant gig. And the, my boss, a woman in Mesa Lechayele, um, she was convinced that everything came from Ethiopia. It was hilarious. Like, like chilies, they're from Ethiopia. Like, no, Mesa Lech, they're from they're from they're from Central America. And like, no, they're from Ethiopia. But, <laughs> but she was convinced that everything good came from from Ethiopia, and, and and where she was right was coffee. 
uh, although the Yemen the Yemenis would uh, would argue that it came from across the Red Sea, but but it's either coffee is either originally from Yemen or Ethiopia, and and but but they had such pride and such tradition and such you know like layers upon layers upon layers upon generations upon generations upon generations of this is how we do this and this is why we do this and there's a reason for it that um, you can't help but be like just blown away by it. Uh, so I think I think beautifully put, Hank, and it, it brings to mind something that I was thinking about when I was driving over here, when I was driving over here forever in California traffic. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I mean, hey, <laughs> when in Rome. Uh, but, and it's an idea that uh, I've actually been bouncing around for a while in my head. Uh, so, you know, I guess... Culturally, we're in some ways we're on a you know culture is like a pendulum swing, right? And we're on a in 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 some ways socially, like maybe more in California than where I live, right? We're on a pendulum swing, right? And so there's this discussion about uh, this idea of cultural appropriation. I've been thinking around a lot, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I've got I've got opinions on it and and thoughts, but I'll tell you a place where. I don't know how comfortable I am with the conversation uh, a lot of times, and that's around food. Because to me, uh, like this idea of gatekeeping around food, it's the antithesis of cultural dissemination, right? Like, Like food and sharing food and people... Uh, learning about other people through their cuisine, through the food they make, right? It's like one of the most basic formative human experiences. Uh, That being said, uh, so the way you just described your approach to these things, right? Like, you know, I mean, one, one can even say like, hey man, you know, you're stepping you're getting a little out of your comfort zone here. You're, gonna, you're doing a cookbook about Mexican cuisine, right? Uh, I don't know if you know this, Hank, but you're a white man in your 50s, right? Uh, I, so, uh, let me check my wallet. <laughs> but, you know, <clears throat> this idea that, you know, like this is a realm you shouldn't be in, right? Uh, I'd argue, like, how could how could someone be more interested and respectful than to approach it the way you're talking about it like i can't possibly understand this begin to understand this without being able to read and and speak the language and it's not just the speaking the language you're talking about reading it as well right Mm -hmm. being able to absorb information through osmosis and through all these different ways uh and then Filter it through the knowledge you already have, the experiences you already have, right? Pay homage to something. Uh, and then because you're a chef, because you're a cook, this is, you know, how you live your life. Like, uh, to me, the best people involved in that trade, they want to add something to the lexicon, right? Uh, and it's not, I don't think it's just about personal legacy. It's about understanding that these are malleable functions and they're meant to be. They are. I think the other piece to that that's important to remember is to give credit where credit is due. 
And I think that's where a lot of the um, valid points of cultural appropriations come out. Where, so, um, for example, uh, I just wrote about uh, I did a smoked swordfish recipe, and it's my method of smoked swordfish. It's like I I this is is how I've smoked a lot of fish for for years, but. I tinkered with it in a way that was informed by a specific shop in Ensenada in Baja. And I link to the shop. I give credit to the shop. Like, like, so what they taught me is like, oh, well, they smoke their fish because it's a very small, strongly smoked. They do marlin and yellowtail and, and tuna that way. Uh, it's very strongly smoked and they smoked over Manzanita. And they do it for X amount of hours, and da da da. And I didn't reveal like their exact thing because it's just, you, you need to go to the shop and buy their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's 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 the I have a platform through for whatever reason, through my own hard work, through luck, through whatever you want to call it. I have a platform, and it is incumbent on me to when I do something. And I do that, what you're talking about. It's like when I add my own stamp on something that I give credit where credit is due for where I got my ideas. And that's where a lot of people fall down is they'll say like, there was a great example. Um, I, I can't remember the food blogger's name, but it was a, it was a young woman food blogger who had created a dish that was basically fuga, which is... It's it's chicken pho, mm-hmm. which you can get at any Vietnamese restaurant. Um, it's you know it's a thing, it exists. I guarantee you that's where she come she's coming from, and she just like didn't even she barely even recognized like to her readers, and she's got a very very big, very big following, like an order of magnitude bigger than mine. And she's like, oh my god, it's like I just I'm gonna give her verbal fry just because yeah, yeah. it's my voice in my head, like. <laughs> And so, so which she's like, oh my god, this is a great soup, blah 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 blah. But doesn't like barely even says that it's Vietnamese. Doesn't give like any credit at all where she got her ingredient list, where she got her ideas for how to make it. Da da da. Doesn't even call it faga, which is what his actual name is. And like every Vietnamese person on the planet is like that's faga, and like you didn't even name it. And so she got massive blowback. And it's just it's like yeah, I hundred percent agree with you. The, the interchange of, of just even in Western, in, in the Pacific coast of Mexico, you'll see soy sauce all, all over the place because there's been Chinese people there for like 300 years. And if you go to Mexicali, which is right on the other side of, of Calexico, um, which if you listen to that, I'll say it one more time. Calexico is right next to Mexicali. Um, there are two cities that are they're separated by the border. Um, but if you go to Mexicali, there's just buttloads of of Chinese Mexicans that have been there for a long, 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 long time. So so there's this there's this this influence of Asian ingredients in Pacific Mexican cuisine that has been there for a, a zillion years. And and so it's just a question of people work hard. People people work hard to do their thing and people who don't who make a lot less money than I do who make a lot less have a lot less notoriety than I do. They work hard and they make beautiful, wonderful things. And they the least you can do if you're in a position like I am is to give them the credit that, that they deserve and to you know to say yeah, this is where it comes from. And if you are ever in the Ensenada, go to the go to the smokehouse there and buy their fish. Uh, 
Man, you know, I. So, I mean, we're getting so real now, Hank. I'll throw one little bit more in it. Like, I, I do think that's something that I, that's an influence that I took from you. Uh, because that's something I totally noticed. And, and here's the other thing too, man. Like, by you doing that, by you always referencing where you're learning something from or who you're inspired by uh, and, you know, giving that plug to a cookbook. Uh, I mean, hell, even like when we're talking – uh god i'm blanking what's that uh cookbook it came out like two years ago it's uh zoe no 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 uh it's, it's like black american food it's like where you we were talking about like the gumbo recipe from it uh oh oh uh tony tipton's book yes yeah Jubilee. Tony tipton yeah Jubilee. uh yeah and like you and me were cooking together and talking about it right uh and like to the influential enough that like to the point uh that there was this like garden and gun article uh, this guy worth parker wrote about black dick uh and then they wanted i like uh you know like part of my little spiel there is i do just like a pan seared goose breast or whatever right and so they wanted the recipe right so i like give them the recipe and like the first thing on there is like i learned how to cook a skin on waterfowl breast from hank shaw right it's not that it's not that hank needs like, uh, you know, like he's not going to be able to keep his lights on if Jonathan Wilkins doesn't say, like, Hank knows how to cook duck. But uh, also, this shit works in cycles, right? You know, like, and so, I mean, not to self-aggrandize myself, man, but, like, to some degree, is like, I develop in this profession, right? Like, if I'm, or, like, when I was on, like, the BHA podcast, right? Like, I mentioned you, right? Like that helps to keep you relevant to like new people that might not have heard of Hank Shaw. They just mm. heard about Jonathan or something. Right. You know? And it like, it, this is all supposed to be cyclical. Right. It's also like just a matter of respect and, uh, and having some humility, you know what I mean? Because like that whole idea, like you can't patent, you can't patent it with these, you can't patent a fragrance. Yeah. Dude, when my dad died, I looked in his uh, glove box. My dad had all these designer imposter. Uh, you know, he'd like be in Walgreens, be like, I'll spend $3 on this this fake cologne. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but like, you can't patent a recipe, right? Uh, you sort of can copyright a recipe. Can you really? So the law is you the head notes and the verbiage of the instructions are copyrightable, the list of ingredients are not. Okay. So if anybody wanted to do any of my recipes and take the list of ingredients and rewrite the, the instructions in their own words, mm -hmm. that's fair. Now they're kind of a douchebag if they don't give their, give me any credit, but it's, it's, it, it's okay. I mean, you know, I can't, I can't bring legal now if they cut and paste, then that's another story, but yeah. So with that knowledge, look for my new book called Goose Duck Duck <laughs> coming out coming out soon. All right. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hank probably wouldn't do the podcast again if I did that. Uh but <clears throat> yeah, man, it's uh I've seen a few, by the way. What? Uh where people have passed off like my exact recipe. Oh like, yeah, no, I've seen it. I've seen them numerous times, man. Uh and that's the thing, too, because I know you. I know that you know when they do it, you know? Uh, and it's like... I see everything. <laughs> <laughs> and 
<laughs> it, you know, dude, and it's it's totally appropriate that it irks you too, man, because it's uh, it's this isn't like this stuff isn't like the happy birthday song, right? Like, yeah, you're still you're out here and you're, I mean, you're still in your prime, right? Like you're. I mean, I mean that. I mean that legitimately, man. Like, I think you're probably the most influential wild game chef of the last twenty years. I really don't know who. I mean, who would be before you? Like, the J.D. Livingston. Okay. Um, he he was the house um, cook guy for uh, Grace Sporting Journal. All right. And I don't know if he's still alive or not, but that guy had chops. That guy was legit. See, I was thinking the Cajun cook. A little different because yeah. he's he's more of a, a kind of a singular singular genre, but but Livingston that guy's that guy was legit and he's got a bunch of books and now I mean from from my perspective as a scholar of this stuff they're really useful and they're good like I can read this rest his recipes I'm like oh yeah they work. Unfortunately, he never wrote a, a pretty cookbook. They're all very kind of bare bones cookbooks and they don't look nice, but he knew or knows his stuff like nobody's business and that and he, that take that'll takes you back to the 60s before that there's a guy named wall um it was I, it's like it's initials so it's like jd wall or something like that but that guy wrote a bunch of cookbooks in the 40s and 50s that were really that were legit so there's you know you there there will people be before me and there'll be people after me and 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 Again, it's just like you tip your hat to the people like, I'm not going to say like, yeah, I, I, I sprang full grown from the head of Zeus, like Athena. Like, yeah, that's not, that just doesn't happen. Like everybody, everybody, you know, goes on somebody else's shoulders and, and you add your own little two bits and then somebody comes after you and they add your two. Yeah. I mean, you know, we'd, we'd probably be remiss too if we didn't mention that. Uh, I'm done singing your praises now, Hank. Um, seems fair <laughs> on to other things. but you know i don't think that i don't think that the uh i don't think that the recipes and the website and all everything you've done would have had the impact without the visual component right mm. uh the which is uh comes from your partner holly that's holly yeah uh holly heiser on instagram i shoot my dinner twice and is she like the, she's a like communications director for Cal Waterfowl? She was so um, very recently. I'm happy to announce that Holly and I are now um, uh, not only life partners but business partners. So um, uh, the what I do is more than a one person's full time job, and so she's been helping me since March. Um, just make this make this work, and the coolest thing that we've done is is we've started uh, a joint kind of chronicle of our, our 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 thoughts and our essays and ideas uh everything not recipes. Yeah, great name by the way for it. Uh uh it's called To the Bone. And it's a it's a you can find it on Substack. And it is everywhere it, it's all of our thoughts about you know, you know the deep thoughts about hunting, deep thoughts about fishing, and and the intersection of food stuff. And I, I write travel logs from whenever I'm in Mexico. So because what has happened was hunter, angler, gardener, cook has become a very very useful resource for recipes. Um, but I had found in the last, you know, it started. I mean, the 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 site's 
15 years old. That's wild, man. Yeah. <laughs> but I had found that the, that the, you know, I'm a writer, you know, I mean, that's what I do. And, and we've really needed an outlet to be able to write, you know, to be able to talk to people, to do, you know, things like kind of what we're doing right now. Uh, and to the bone is, is, is our source for it. And, and she and I trade off each week, uh, every Tuesday we'll publish a, uh, a, an essay or a thought or a travelogue or a hunting story or something like that. And it's, it's been really, really, really kind of cool actually. And you could subscribe for free or, uh, and you don't get everything that we write, but, um, if you, if, you know, it's a, it costs like. We figured it out. It costs two and a half bismuth shotgun shells a month to uh, to subscribe to us. <laughs> Biz, so bismuth, not even tungsten, huh? Yeah, not even tungsten. No. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's not crazy at all. No, it's like a latte. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, it's it's just it's a way for Holly, because people um, people like to ascribe to me a lot of the big ticket kind of big thinking hunting stuff. And some of it is indeed mine, but a lot of it is is either from Holly or or it's from conversations that Holly and I have had over the years. And so Holly thinks about this stuff a lot, and she's got a, 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 a wicked smart, to use a Boston term, mind for this kind of stuff. And so that that and this is a chance for her to actually be her again, because years ago, and I don't know if you know this, but. Years ago, and in fact, I believe it was like a month or two before Hunter Angler Gardener Cook started in 2007, because I started in November. I think she started like in September or something. She started a blog on Blogspot, if you remember that. I Man, that's before even me. No. Yeah, called uh, NorCal Cazadora. And Cazadora is just a hunter and a female hunter in Spanish. And, and so she started that, and that was, it was a, ragingly successful blog in terms of ideas of the, like, the, uh, thinking about the, you know, the, the things that we talk about in hunting and fishing, like, like ethics and, and, you know, why do we do this? And, 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 you know, the, I mean, this is a big deal that we do. Like it's, you know, we kill things like there's no sugarcoating it. Like when you shoot a deer, you're killing a deer, right? Like that's, you can, you can look away from that, but it's, that's the fact. And you have to own up to it. Like, yeah, I just shot this deer that had a, it had likes and dislikes. It had a personality and, you know, it was probably not as clever as I am, but it certainly wasn't a robot. And, and I'm going to cut it up and I'm going to put it in my freezer and I'm going to eat it. And you have to wrap your mind around that. And, and if, if, if you grew up hunting, you wrapped your mind around it when you were 12 or whenever, but I didn't start hunting until I was 31 and Holly until a little later. And so she and I talk about this stuff all the time and it has helped us kind of hone our thinking about this whole pursuit that we do. And, and in fact, I just, I wrote an article for Outside Magazine just this, this past week and the editor came back and, and was talking about the sport of turkey hunting. I'm like, nope, can't use that word. Because unless you're in the Colombian national soccer team, nobody dies in sports. Like, this is a pursuit. Pursuit is the word I use because, you know, hunting is, it's a big deal. Like, there's no real catch and release hunting. And let's, you know, dirty secret, 
fish die in Ketrunli's fishing. And you have to treat it like with the seriousness that it deserves. And if you don't, that's just it's a disservice to your fellow animals. Yeah, man, that sport thing, and I've talked about it on the podcast a little bit. It uh it 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 feels like it's and you hear it a lot with like duck hunting, right? It it feels like it trivializes it mm-hmm. a, a little bit. hundred um, percent. Yeah. Well, dude, that's fantastic. Yeah, that sub stack, and we were talking about it. You guys were about to start it last time I was here in December. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, it's it all kind of speaks to, so, like, uh, I have no illusions that Hank listens to my podcast, but so, you know, like, the, the copy on the beginning is, like, uh, just finding interesting people who have found an intersection between like working with their hands and thoughtful consideration, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what that really has led me to is meeting a bunch of people who who have just figured out ways to do stuff themselves, right? Like there's not really a specific blueprint, like like we're talking about. They're they're pulling influence from all these different places, but the way it's set up. There's not a rubric for it, right? They've got to find they've got to find or create one for themselves. And then often, as you're talking about right now, that's going to to change, right? Like by its nature, mm-hmm. it's going to change. Uh so that's gnarly, man. I'm glad I'm glad so she's doing that full time now and step, yeah. step down from Cal Waterfowl, huh? Well, you know what's cool too, man, is uh I mean, she was very influential in that role. Like, I talked to lots and lots of people uh, that know who Holly is. She's legit. Like, so she's definitely the best woman duck hunter I've ever met, and I've met a lot. And she is among the best duck hunters I've ever met. Like, what, what do you think is the quality that makes her so? Um, no preconceived notions. Hmm. Like, she approaches duck hunting the way i mean she actually approaches it the way i approach food so i shoot a lot of ducks and i'm great i'm happy that's cool that's cool that's fine and but she is super into ducks and i mean all 20 365 and super into the habitat and what they are and what they do and 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 so you know it's because of her that when we call widgeon we don't do like everybody else on the planet. No, we run our widgeon call the way we, we, we call widgeon the way widgeon talk. We listen to widgeon talk and we, we talk like widgeon and we kill ass loads of widgeon because we talk like widgeon and we don't do. And which every duck caller tells you what to do in your widgeon call, which is stupid. And, and so it's just, it's stuff like that where, no, this doesn't work. We do this. Like she makes her own ghillie suit and it works like, I mean, there's a there's a story she wrote in Substack and the to the bone about like the stuff that she makes that allows her because the, the way we hunt is we hunt public land in California on foot with no dog and and it's it's a beautiful way to hunt because you're mobile and she watches the birds and I watch I mean we're, don't get me wrong we're both good duck hunters but she like she will taunt ducks when I'm like, yeah, there's no way I'm going out on like a, 
November's really slow for us. So like, there's no way I'm going to go out on a November where it's like 60 degrees out, like to hell with that. And she's like, Nope, going and she'll kill some ducks. And so it's the, it's a curiosity. It's the, it, she's well read, she's well sourced. And in, in, in most duck hunting duck hunters that I found are very hidebound and she's just not. What do you mean hidebound? That's why we have my, my dad told me to do it. So maybe my granddaddy do it. Like, yeah, do it. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, well, the way you, your granddad does, it sucks. <laughs> or it just doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Because that stuff changes too. Yep. You know? Or, or it works here, but yeah. not even 50 miles away. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, you know what I saw when I, went, when I was up here hunting? And I mean, Holly was there, that Susan Marsh. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was hunting with my buddy Patrick out there. And Patrick's like, Told you, Patrick's my country friend from Mississippi. Oh, he's Mississippi. I forget which yeah. state he was from. Yeah, uh, he definitely has got a country accent. Yeah, no, he's he's legit country. Uh, but uh, so me and him were so we were probably like two of the more experienced duck hunters there, right? That that hunt? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, well, it was four new hunters, right? Yeah. But uh, we were also like the two southern duck hunters, right? Like from a mm-hmm. from the region that we're from, right? So the way that we duck hunt, and I've told people this, I was, and what I've said is, I was like, I said those ducks in California, they don't, they don't re- respond to a call, man. Like the mm-hmm. only thing you can get to break is a shoveler. Mm-hmm. You know, but like where I'm from, there's a lot of importance placed on being as good of a duck caller as you can be, because that's that's how you can be successful. Oh my God. If I, uh, the, the, the stupid Arkansas hail call, just, I hear it every season in California. Like you are just wasting your breath. Yeah. We'll never break a duck in, in California. Well, you know, too, you're talking about, so that's become very much exaggerated because of like competition calling. Yeah. But, when you talk about Arkansas style of call, and like when I was hunting with uh, Wade and Rachel from Elevated Wild, they were saying they had never seen anyone call as aggressively as, as we were calling. Uh, and like to the point that we were, when ducks were going to land, we were hunting in a pit blind, and when they were going to land too far away, we would just, just wail on them to get them to bounce up off the water. Did we do that? Yeah. Okay, so, uh, so it's not specific purely to arkansas but uh no we'll we, sound like a like a pissed off hen if they were landing too far yeah away. just like scream at them yeah. right but we like call a lot but really where that came from and so some of that is just what you've become accustomed to and like what you're used to and what you like to do but what that really is coming from is hunting in flooded timber where you're surrounded by so- sound absorbing material yeah you know what i mean so like you have to blast through that that's like the whole idea of cut down calls mm-hmm. and all that stuff right is uh like, and then trying to get a, a duck that's up in the air and, you know, you're not in a big open marsh where they can spot you. Like they've got to be on top of you. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times those ducks are, they're initially keen in just on an auditory, uh, or from an auditory sense. And then they're like coming down and looking around and they're searching you out. Uh, but then just because of, you know, DVDs and style and like, you know, there's style involved in it, and then that becomes. There was this thing going around, just to speak to how culturally relevant it is. There was this thing going around in Arkansas. I remember some years back where uh, 
a lot of these kids in high school were wearing they were like these duck call necklaces but so it was but it was like a duck call that was a tenth the size of a normal one hmm. and it's and you know they're like wearing they're wearing uh like you know uh <laughs> Like a fleece, like a waiter fleece jacket that's like fleece on the bottom and the camel on top, mm-hmm. and they're wearing that, and it's just, it's just a cultural identifier. Yeah, you want to win a bar bet? Sure. What state kills the most ducks every year? California, right? California. Yeah, California kills the most. California's got the most hunters. Uh, Do we have the most hunters? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The per, te- now, the Texas might, but no, I think it's California. But it's like in Arkansas, like per capita. Arkansas. I think Louisiana wins per capita. Really? It that may change, but but historically Louisiana has been the best per capita. Okay, well, so I wasn't even going to claim in the country. I'm just saying per capita we've got more hunters in California. Oh, okay. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. But California kills way more ducks. There are also the California limits and seasons are <laughs> <Yeah>. ridiculous. <laughs> yes, man. they are. 10 specks a day, or really it's 10 dark geese, but most most of our dark geese are uh, are specks. Um, you can't kill, I mean, we can find Aleutians and, and cacklers to some extent. And if you're in the foothills, you'll kill Canada geese. But, but for us, a dark goose meat generally means, um, means a speck. And then light geese are Rosses or, or lesser snow geese. Mm-hmm. And then we can get 25 of those, um, which I've never done. And then seven, seven regular ducks. Yeah. But can you kill seven mallards? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's wild. Only man. two hens. As it should be. Uh, and then incidentally not, and, and Holly's the one who, who educated me on this one. Really? Hunting does not affect hunting as it is hunting as it exists in today's world does not affect duck population. Okay. Now I, I have heard this. We were talking about Who was I talking about it with? Uh, I think Brent Birch, uh, like that's what the scientists are saying, right? hundred mm-hmm. percent. Now, now Holly's the one you should talk about. Because she knows this chart and verse, but what I really know is that like a seven duck limit or a six duck limit or whatever it is in the East Coast, five probably, will not affect duck populations at all. What do you think it mostly is? Reproductive habitat? Habitat, 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 habitat. It's always habitat. So like droughts in the prairie pothole region are bad. Yeah, droughts are bad. Um, Yeah, there's... Yeah, it's it's always about brood habitat. Like pintails is a great example. So pintail, the reason why we can only kill one or two pintails is almost entirely because um, because the of farming practices in Alberta and Saskatchewan. How so? The the Holly again. Holly knows all the details, but the it's something about like the way they harvest their wheat. Just their nests success is like 1% or 5% or something crazy low like that. Wow. Like, so they, if they just changed the way that they would do their farming practices, we'd have twice as many pintails and yeah, it's just, it's nuts. Man, you've got a, you've got quite a few pintails over here. We have all the pintails. Yeah. It's us in Matagorda Bay. Like it's like, we have all the pintails. That's where, I mean, I killed my first pintail in December. Yeah. I had to come all the way over here to kill a pintail. Well, we got pretty ones too. Yeah, man. They were both, yeah, both sprigs. Both bulls? Yeah. Yeah. Well, if it was me and Patrick, I'm going to claim one of them. He can claim the other one. Uh, Seems fair. It, it is fair. It's equitable. <laughs> uh, well, shit, we've been talking a long time, man. Uh, I'm going to let you go. i got to drive back to Sonoma and get one more turkey hunting. There you go. Uh, Season's ending. 
Yeah, but you get arc two more weeks of archery though. I think we do, we do. But I, I generally only hunt with shotguns. Yeah, it's. I'll tell you what, man. I was real. I was kind of going back and forth with Jimmy, and I was like, man, you know, dude, I'm trying to, I'm trying to hunt with this old 870, man, you know. But uh, I've killed two the last two days with a bow, and there's some, there's some real benefits to it. Namely, being that you don't blow all the turkeys out of the place. Yeah. But tomorrow, uh, hell, it's your third. Just just shoot one in the face with a shotgun. Uh, yeah, that was discussed. There's kind of some landowner things and like. Oh, they don't want a big boom. Yeah, there's like a there's like a sister that lives on the property, and it's just you know, man. If you're getting permission, there's no need to make somebody's life harder. No, no, I didn't. You're clearly successful with a bow, so. <laughs> yeah, man. I'm just, I'm just gonna I'm gonna keep rolling with it, but uh, we'll be we'll be up in Oregon in a couple of days, and we we've got some uh some shotgun places up there and it's that's Miriam's uh no most of these so Oregon as I understand Oregon does have a small population of Miriam's but there what? are Miriam's in Sonoma really yep there so it's it's never a bright line um there is a flock of Miriam's in Sonoma that I have hunted several times um you know bright white on the outside of the the tail and damn they're there there's Merriam's in Lassen County. There's Merriam's in Redding. There's, you know, it's, 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 it's Merriam's and Rio's, Merriam's and Rio's all the way up to like mid Oregon. And then it's just Merriam's up at the top. Surely they're, they're interbreeding too, yeah, right? Yeah. They probably are. Yeah. Cause that, the turkey yeah. I killed yesterday, uh, you know, brown tips mm-hmm. on his feathers, right? And that was the Super thing, Rio. Yeah. That was the thing that was so mesmerizing about that one today is when it, fanned out dude it was like out in the sun in this beautiful little like wildflower Mm -hmm. uh, valley in between these oaks and man that sun hit those wingtips and just like stark white oh yeah just glowing man yep and two of them were coming in and i felt myself i you know what i felt myself coveting you know and i was the white pigeon is the one that gets shot yeah and i was like (laughs) man i was like that thing is so pretty i was like and it was all puffed up mine was a white one this year and I was like, that's one. I'll, I'm going to shoot the one I get a shot at. Yeah. But that's the one I really want. And I was like, push it out of your head, man. Now, there's a Smokey that lives in the Sacramento area here. There's a, it's a Smoke Phase Rio. And it's like, it looks like Moon Knight. It's like, a, it's like all shades of white and gray. Like the whole thing, like slate covers? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really? Wow. Yeah, pretty cool. Dude, yeah. I've never shot one, but. Those turkeys, man, they're really occupying a. They're starting to occupy a place in my heart, man. And they're delicious. D- dude, that's the other thing too, man. Oh, I got a thing. Okay, so so next year, I got a buddy. His name is Ali Bay, and he is uh, he lives in Utah, uh, but he's got real good connections in Florida for Osceolas. Dude, really? We should go hunt Osceolas next year. Shit, I'll, I'll say it's my podcast. Fuck yeah, Hank. <laughs> we'll go do that, man. Yeah. I'm, all, I'm all about that, dude. Yeah, these damn turkeys are, they're... Uh, it's weird too, man, because I mean, would you say at at your core you're a bird guy? Yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah. And like I I am too, man. Like I'm a and it's what I'm realizing too is it's the it's the birds that I can communicate with. That's mm. that that's an element of it to me, right? That's why it's like that's why it's turkeys and ducks, right? And and geese. Uh, and it's why I like specs so much because specs talked back and forth to you so much. Lulup, lulup. Yeah, yeah. Lulup, 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 lulup. 
Yeah, uh, I mean, shit, dude, I did that drive out here. The whole way I was like, man, I'm going to learn how to run this diaphragm call. Mm. And I'm just like driving around, blowing, <laughs> blowing spit all over the inside of my, <laughs> my deal, like trying to stay awake, man, listening to podcasts. And uh, I made it, man. But anyway, dude, uh, Hank, I appreciate the hell out of you, buddy. And uh, thanks for doing the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Black Duck Revival podcast. As always, it's produced by me, Jonathan Wilkins, and Brian Sachs. Uh, as of this recording, I am in Oregon right now, a little bit uh, on the early half of the midway point of my Western Turkey tour. So I've been in California, I'm in Oregon now, uh, kind of the Central Valley of Oregon. I'll be in the eastern side of Oregon hunting later on, then making my way across Idaho and finally ending up in Montana for Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Rendezvous, where I'll be uh, giving a waterfowl seminar and participating in a panel discussion, I believe. If you want to keep up with me and follow what's going along on this journey, best way to do it is on Instagram. We're posting stuff as it happens. I think even later this week, we're going to do a Instagram live cooking demo. So that'll be fun. I'm over here wrestling with Rusty Flat, the duck dog of Jimmy Flat, and Lydia Parker here, the founders of Hunters of Color. I'm staying at their house for a few days, just hunting turkeys and having a good time and kicking it with my friends. So like I said, you can follow along on Instagram. You can also visit the website, blackduckrevival.com. And please help the podcast grow. You can do that by subscribing, making a post about the podcast, telling people you like it. Uh, tell a friend, tell an enemy, tell somebody you know that likes interesting long-form conversations. And uh, that helps tremendously. So until next time, folks, we'll see you later. Later.